that the life of the life that the world seeks is in blood, but the life that the Father gives you is not in that blood, not in the physical blood in your body, so that you could actually witness death and not be bothered by it because you're not losing anything. been listening to old hymns because you know last weekend being Easter and everything and the, there's power in the blood and I'm thinking no <laughs> I mean you can you could probably twist an argument to make it work that way but um, same thought you know it's like it, it didn't work and it, when, whenever you're thinking thoughts like that it's fine if it's just you personally but if you're communicating these thoughts to other people, you want to weigh out what they're hearing when you say that. Yeah. Okay? Absolutely. Now, I understand the context of what you guys are saying. But when you say there's power in the blood, I understand the, the premise behind what you're saying. There's no power in my blood. Outside of my blood, having been born again from the incorruptible seed, and there's eternal life in my DNA. But there most certainly is power in the blood of Jesus. Right? And the power that's in the blood of Jesus is that through him shedding his blood, we've put off death in him. Yeah, that's not the blood I'm talking about. No, no, I know, <laughs> but, but he, he brought up the him that right. there's power yeah. in the blood. And yeah. so I'm assuming that him ain't talking about there's power in my blood. Yeah. There's right. power in the blood of Jesus. Right. right? And so when, when we have these thoughts, it's fine as we're having these thoughts individually, but as we're talking with people we know, we, we want to be presenting the gospel in a way that isn't now going to come and like smack them upside the head with a two by four any more than they already will be right because i mean immediately their minds could be filled with verses there's one thing western evangelicalism kind of i don't want to say kind of got right the way they presented it was wrong but they're about the word the word the word the word you got to be in the word you got to be in the word well because of that everybody's got a myriad of verses in their head now you come and tell them there's no power in the blood immediately their head's going to jump to revelation where it says we overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony and they're going to start running to, there's no forgiveness of sin without the the shedding of blood they're going to start running to all these things and their minds are going to start racing and they're not going to hear your heart yeah right, right. and no, so what Thomas is saying, what Thomas is saying, is absolutely true. Which say that again? You were thinking about Leviticus, where it says that the life of the flesh is in the blood, and you were thinking. I was thinking that that my life, which is God's life, is not in my physical blood, and so that if I witness the loss of blood, which is a sign of death in me, that that wouldn't bother me, because my life is not in that. Yeah, and you would see that, even as that blood. Uh, yeah, theoretically, that would not. No, right. You're shot. No, yeah, you would feel it. Your body wouldn't like it. That's right. Your body might be grappling with death, but the Holy Spirit's going to intercede in your heart in that moment, right? And you'll begin to know where your life is hid. Right? So Thomas saying that, jumping to there being power in the blood of Jesus, there's a number of the way they presented that is all wrong. Right? But the truth of the matter is, is that there is a whole lot of power in the fact that Jesus shed his blood. Right? right. But you have to have the right context. A absolutely, you have right. to have the right context. Yeah. And that's what we're coming to change, though, is the context from which that statement is made. Yes. Not that that statement is wrong. Right. Right? Because yes. if we get caught up in the statement, then we're, we're, we're arguing about the wrong thing. It goes to reasoning with a carnal mind or a spiritual mind. So the statement, you could say... 
is the statement, and what the statement means is a function of what mind you're using to digest it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. The po- mm-hmm. you, you can even say in Jesus' blood being shed, the power behind my life is no longer the blood in my body. It's the spirit of the living God. Right. Right? Yes. And that's the kind of line you would go down, death being conquered, our lives being divorced from being held by this world, meaning our lives are no longer earthy because Jesus shed his blood. Right? right? Our lives have been born again from an incorruptible seed, from above, from the word of truth. Yeah. Right? Right. And so in the blood of Jesus is where the power for all that to go down took place. Right. Right. But I, I will tell you before it came into grace, my understanding was there was something magic about the blood of Jesus that did something magically to me that it was a wonderful thing. And I didn't have a clue what it truly represented. Yeah, it was like fairy dust. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I covered in the blood. blood. Whatever that meant. Right, plead the blood. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Right, and what, what's going on there is all of us could see there's got to be something with the blood. Because we can read the verses, right? <laughs> yeah, and we, right. we see all the stuff. So there's got to be some power in the blood. So we don't really know what it is, but we're still going to say that there is. <laughs> Right? Yes. Which I guess is better than not saying what it is or not saying it at all. But really, when you come in and understand what you're saying, yeah, that, that's much better. Right? I remember one of the things for us was you're covered in the blood. And what that meant was God no longer sees you. He sees Jesus now. Yeah. Right? And that's how he can like you. That's right. That was our concept of pleading the blood. You're covered in the blood. Right? right? Listen, I, I just want to say, if you're pleading the blood with the devil, the devil already knows that you don't believe. Right? He, he already knows that, mm-hmm. right? If you're pleading with him, it, it, what you're going to hear back is one of those things like he said to that guy, Paul I know and Jesus I know, but who are you? Yeah, right. Right? <laughs> who are you? That's right. Right? Because the, the blood declares that, that the serpent's head has been crushed. Yeah. The blood declares that you've been divorced from death, mm-hmm. right? The, the blood would do something inside of you where Satan would have nothing in you, right? Where he'd end up fleeing from you on account of your heart having been filled with eternal life and eternal life resisting in you. It says resist the devil and he will flee from you, right? Well, how do you resist the devil? Again, Western society, to use this language, Western society thinks of resisting and not just (coughs) resisting, but all er verbs or actions as an active action instead of a passive action. Instead of something that's happening or working in you. Well, the Hebrew thought would be much more of a passive action, resisting, right? Meaning there's something that will resist in you, and are you looking at that which will resist in you? And so the way you would resist the devil is by you having your eyes set on God and the life he has in himself and the love that's in his heart for you. Right? That would resist in you. you. Like Jesus. When Jesus was there with the devil um, at the beginning of Luke and they were tempting Jesus, Jesus wasn't resisting in the sense that we think of resisting. He wasn't gritting his teeth and saying, I won't do that. He wasn't thinking, I must be obedient. He wasn't thinking about any of that. But you know what his mind was filled with? The Father's in me and I'm in the Father. Yeah, it's like resistance to a virus. You don't do anything to resist it, but there's a resistance in you. That's right. That's exactly right. And so resist the devil and he will flee. Well, the moment your heart's been filled with the word of how you've been divorced from death and how your life isn't held in this world and the corruptible things in this world and that your life is hid in God with Christ, that your life has been clothed upon, pitched within and without with an incorruptible, by an incorruptible seed and that you have a life in you that overcomes the world, that no matter how many times the world comes against the life you have, the life you have is going to stand up. 
And when it stands up, you're going to be in a greater power position than you were before you got smacked by the world. Right? Now, as you see that, that will resist in you. Right? That will keep you from taking up your life. Because your mind will be filled with what God has done to take up your life. You'll be, your mind will be filled with, I'm the temple of the living God. That means God has come to sup with me. I am God's habitation. Well, when you move into a house, who takes on the responsibility of caring for the house? The head of the house. Well, who do you think is the head of our house? If we're the temple of God, whose habitation are we? God. There's a subconscious, subliminal thing he's trying to say to all of us. He's taken it upon himself to keep this house. Right? Like the commercial, we must protect this house. That's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We must protect this house. And how are we going to protect this house? We're going to indwell this house. We're going to make this body our temple, and we're going to dwell in that body. Right? And what will happen is, listen, that God will stand up in you over and over and over and over and over and over again. And your mind will begin to be filled with the God who stands up in you, or the God that takes up your life. And so every time the devil comes and points at you and tells you about how your life is being trampled on, how this person's trampling on your life, this job is trampling on your life, this government is trampling upon your life, this war is trampling upon your life, and he's tempting you to take up your own life and take up the lives of those around you, your mind will be filled with the God that is the Good Samaritan. Your mind will be filled with the God who found you dead on the side of the road and picked you up and filled you with the wine of his life and made a habitation for you inside of his bosom. And your mind becomes filled with, I'm in his bosom and he's in mine. Right? You begin to see your head resting on his bosom. That will resist in you. Yeah. Right? right? And the devil will flee. Yeah. He'll, be, he'll be sent away. Right? No willpower. Required. No willpower. That's not pleading the blood. <laughs> right? That's knowing. Yes. That's knowing. Yes. That's experiential knowledge where you've seen what that blood is about and what that blood has done, yeah. right? And it ain't a common thing to you. You know, when you, uh, when, when I think about plenty of the old hymns, I think to myself, there is a huge amount of revelation that exists in those hymns that what they should have did when they went to church was sang the hymns and left. <laughs> the, problem is, the problem is they listen to the hymns and then they listen to the preaching and, but, but listen it's, it's interesting about poetry and music those things kind of like emanate from the hearts of men what they know and what they have experienced of God and that kind of comes out in poetry and in music and Man, there is a tremendous amount. You, I, I was just reading this Power and Blood song. And the reason we look at the title and you say there's Power and Blood and you're pleading the blood of Jesus and all this kind of stuff, you immediately say, man, there's, there's something amiss with, you know, there's Power and the Blood. What does that mean, you know? But if you actually read that song, there's power in the blood. It testifies that there's power in the blood of Jesus Christ because the blood of Jesus Christ testifies like the cross testifies. Not just that Jesus died on the cross, but that he, he died for our sins on the cross. He took them away, took death away, and was raised from the dead. So the cross isn't about the cross. 
The cross is about all those things. Yeah. Just like the blood is more than just the blood. Yeah. And that's what that song actually, when you read it, it testifies to. But you, you hear the song and then you listen to the sermon. <laughs> and a, the sermon becomes a problem. That's right. All the things they said about the blood. They negate, that's right. The they, negate, that's right. they negate everything in the song with the sermon. Yeah, right. <laughs> and to Jay's point, I understood what you were saying. Yeah, sure. So oh, I wasn't yeah, sure. I I'm, do too. I'm for the benefit of everybody that's yes, listening right. to exactly. this. I just wanted to fill out the thought. I know exactly. I appreciate that. Exactly what you mean, and I I agree with with what you're saying there. I mean, for so long for me, the way I was taught about the blood is the power in the blood was like I said. You're covered in the blood, so God don't see you anymore. He sees Jesus, which is a, a very important thing because you suck real bad, right? Yeah. You're the worst kind of degenerate yeah. slime, you're a sinner, worm you're a sinner. that God could ever see. Yeah. And so that's how there was power in the blood. And then there was power in the blood in the sense that um, God, whooped, the Father whooped Jesus and, instead of whooping me. And, and those were the, was the power. Right, that God got out all of his anger with me on Jesus. And that now I can, you know, I can be forgiven. Or that God got it right to not be angry with me anymore. Right. It's also subtle in the sense that uh, it implies uh, very directly that God changed his view of you. Yeah. Which means uh, in this situation, uh, he didn't like you before and I liked you. And uh, that's, that's a, uh, a very damaging thought. You may not, you might not catch it. I didn't catch it, you know, right off the bat when you started addressing that. Years ago. But uh, if if God can change His view of you for the better, then He can change it back for the worse. That's right. And then you're like up and down with God, depending on whether you're a good little boy or girl. That's right. And it, it will and lead it you there. you up to the, the performance teaching. Okay. And, and even the grace of our Lord then becomes taught in a performance way. And in and, and the beginning part of walking in the grace, the whole revelation was just that we're not under the law. There was no understanding about any of it, which that was a nice thing to hear because then at least you stopped like cognizantly looking at this as if I need to do this to be justified before the Lord. There was some good stuff there, but if I'm being honest, that camp where we ended up with was all the time just confessing that we're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And what I realized is there was never any real persuasion that that was true. We were always trying to strong arm ourselves into believing it was true. And I used to wonder why are we struggling to believe this is true? And I realized that we were still reading the law with the veil over our eyes. We didn't see that Christ was the manifestation of what the law was always saying. So we still sat with this dichotomy of God whereby God wanted us to do all these things right. He wanted us to clothe ourselves in his fruit. He wanted us to produce his fruit, and we didn't. We didn't perform the law, and he was very upset with us back then, but he found a way to not be upset anymore because he got Jesus to take his anger for us. Well, that leaves you, like you said, double-minded, right? right? You right. think God wanted this from you before, but now he's changed his mind. Listen, a God who changes his mind all the time will not bring you stability. Just think about being in a close relationship with someone that changes their mind all the time. Do you feel any stability? Like you could wake up in the morning and think, what's today going to be like? <laughs> what, how's today going to go? Because this person that I'm walking with every day changes their mind, flip-flops from this to that every single day. And I don't mean like has a new idea that's born from the same premise. Their premise is changing every day. Oh, yeah. There's no stability there. 
And so if you got a view of a God who was talking to you one way here, and now all of a sudden changed the way he talks to you, you got a God who could talk to you different a different day. And your heart recognizes that dynamic. And your heart won't let go of the old way because your heart will think that's the way he was. And what, what, what will help? What's up, man? What will help your heart? This is Hunter, everyone, for those of you who don't know. What will help your heart? What will, <laughs> Greg does this. Oh, okay. <laughs> he does a little flanking. What, what We're will, just looking out for you. What will help your heart is to see that God has only ever been talking Jesus. And now that Christ has come as rabbi, you can't be called rabbi unless you were teaching from the law. And so the fact that Jesus is called rabbi, he wasn't a scribe, which means he had uh, shmika, which meant he had the authority to interpret the law and the prophets. He's called rabbi, which meant he came with an interpretation about the law and the prophets. His interpretation is the only interpretation anybody should be understanding. And so what that means is Jesus came as the prophet that would come and bring to light what the law was always saying. And you're supposed to look at Jesus and see he's the word made flesh about what the law was always saying. Now the law and the prophets collide with the faith that was revealed in Jesus. And you see God has always been saying the same thing. God has always been prophesying the same thing. God has always ever only wanted one thing from us. You know what he's wanted from us? For us to look to him to be clothed without life. For us to see that he's father. For us to see that it's his good pleasure to serve us with life. For us to see that he's performed a work to give us the life we need. And for us to walk in his good work. That's all he's ever been saying. And then you get a great stability in your thoughts about God. And I promise you, that stability becomes a deep, significant foundation in your heart. And you begin walking in the world in the spirit of a God who's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. In the spirit of a God who's always been saying the same thing. And you see it much more clearly when you see he's always been saying the same thing. And then you see the pictures of what he was saying back there. And you see how it connects with Jesus. And you start finding it all come together. And it's like a magical symphony, man, where you feel great stability. Where you know God. If you sit with contrary views of God, you don't know God. You're still trying to know God, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. You could be in that stage. But where you're going to go if you're really walking with the Lord Jesus is you're going to end up seeing God that has never changed. He's always been the God that was revealed in the face of Jesus, right? right. And then there's great stability in that because your heart becomes settled. Now, this is what this guy is after. I see it clearly. And your life becomes shaped by his prophetic utterance, by his word, right? And I promise you, his word is not the word of what you need to do to produce life in yourself so he can like you. His word is that he's loved you with an everlasting love from before you were born from your mother's womb. And it's his good pleasure to do a work to serve you with the life you long for, right? In first grade, I was taught by the Catholic nuns. Every time you sin, you get a black mark on your soul. Yeah. You go to yeah. confession, you get the black market raised. Mm-hmm. Boy, that'll mess up a little kid. Huh? Yeah. And so you spend your life trying to get your record clean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Could we even say that a, a, a God who changes his mind about who we are is, is even God? I mean, that's really kind of a Greek view of who a God would be, and that there would be human characteristics of variability in that as opposed to the constancy 
the stability of the true God. Okay. Something I found helpful that Greg you have taught is if you if you're if you're exposed to a teaching of Scripture that you don't see true in Jesus, then that teaching isn't correct. Yep. And you can as see a, that as an easy, <coughs> easy litmus test. Yes, do, you, right. do you see that true in Jesus? Well, if you don't, then it ain't true. It's a very easy litmus test. And once you understand that, and all the pictures in the Old Testament come into line because you see they're pointing to Jesus, they start giving shape to one another. Because you can look at the silhouette of something to help fill out the shape. And so you can look back at the shadow and see how there are parts of the shadow that gave great detail about the, the substance when it would appear and when it would manifest. One of the things I'm thinking of just outrightly because of the Western culture we're in, which says that the Father poured out his wrath onto the Son, right? Well, to Thomas's point, when you look back, Jesus is the Word made flesh about what brought death to the sacrifice. Well, you can look back at that and say, well, let me get some shape about what brought death to Jesus on the cross. Let me look back into the Old Testament and see that the high priest laid hands on every single one of the sacrifices before the high priest would kill the sacrifice or before the sacrifice would die. Well, what, you know what you don't see not one time in any of the Old Testament types, which go read through Leviticus. There's a whole lot of blood spilled. There's a whole lot of sacrificing of the animals. You know what you never hear one time? And the high priest laid hands on the lamb to put the wrath of God on the lamb. You don't hear that one time. Not one time is that in any of the types and shadows. Never once does it say that the wrath of God or the anger of God was placed upon the lamb. Never once. Do you know what it is said? And... The, whole, the, the, the point there is, when you say what's being laid upon the lamb, that's supposed to declare what brought death to this lamb, right? And so when they laid their hand on the lamb, do you know what they imputed to the lamb? The sin of the people. Now, why would you impute the sin of the people to the lamb? Because the sin of the people was killing them. And you wanted to, you felt propitious towards them, you were full of love towards them, and you wanted to cleanse them from the death their sin was serving them with. The way you would do that is you would lay the sin that was killing your people on this lamb. And the sin that was killing your people will now bring death to this lamb. And then this lamb would take away the sin that was killing your people. Right? That's the whole premise there. That's the whole dynamic. It's not the wrath of God that's killing people. And then people might want to come and say, well, what about the verse that says we're saved from wrath? Well, there's a whole lot of things you got to understand before you even start trying to piece that together. I mean, first of all, you got to remove your definition that the word wrath means anger, yes. as if you're safe from the anger of God. The second thing you need to do is you need to find enough humility in yourself to say that you're not the Apostle Paul and that you weren't given the, the mantle to interpret the Old Testament scriptures. But this guy, Paul, was. So let's see how Paul describes the wrath of God. Paul describes the wrath of God in Romans as God's decree or his rejection that man can find life by their own works. Yes. So he issues a decree or a judgment. Paul also equates the word wrath to God's judgment in Romans 2. Right? Well, Jesus says, the Father has given all judgment into my hands. Right? And he says, I judge no one. And he says, oh, and the Father judges no one either. Right? But then he goes on to say, there's one that will judge you, even the word that I spoke. What word? His judgment, 
his decree against the unrighteousness of man. What's the unrighteousness of man? Not that man were bad boys and bad girls and did some bad things. The unrighteousness of man, Paul defines it in Romans 1. They worship the creature instead of the creation or the creator. What does that mean? They worship the works of their own hands instead of the God who creates all things. So the wrath of God is his rejection of that belief. He's issued a judgment against it as the way unto life. To be saved from wrath is to be saved from the end that's coming from trusting in your own works from life. That's what it means to be saved from God's wrath. He has rejected that this is the way unto life. And all those who don't hear what he says, all those who continue to trust in their own works, they are heaping up to themselves death and destruction. To be saved from wrath is to be saved from the end that's coming to trying to find life from your own works. So we can say that God has rejected, has rejected the cancer but not the patient. Right. That's what it means to be saved from judgment. Yeah. Right? right? It's not judging against you. It's that God has issued a judgment and he's rejected this. Right? Yep. Which means this way is near unto cursing. That's what the scripture says. Near unto cursing, meaning its natural end is destruction. Right? So to be saved from wrath is to be saved from the destruction God said is coming to this way. Right. That's what it means to be saved from wrath. Destruction is coming to this way. How do we know? God hid his face from that way. That's his wrath. Right? Now, the way you're going to be saved from that is by not believing this way. You're going to be saved from the destruction that's coming to the serpent and his system. Which destruction Jesus spoke of in his whole ministry? Go read the Gospel of John. That's his judgment. That's his decree. Right? That's what it means to be saved from wrath. But we come with our own concepts of wrath. We come from our own view of wrath. And we think that to be saved from wrath means we're going to be saved from God smiting us or God being angry with us. Right? Right? But if you just read the scriptures, those things don't line up. Even if you get to Revelation, which most every Christian, honestly, would come and declare that the destruction that happens there comes from the hand of God. And they could quote many verses. None of them would be in their context, but they could quote many verses. But if you get to Revelation 18, and it talks about Babylon and the whore of Babylon, it specifically says that the plague that manifested was in her. Not God. And so you, to be saved from wrath, is to be saved from the plague that's going to manifest in Babylon when God lets Babylon loose to have what it wants. Which is another meaning of the word wrath, to let something loose, to have what it wants. Well, there's coming a day where everybody who's believed on Jesus will have believed on Jesus. And he will have done everything he can to persuade. And he's going to bow his head and honor people as co-equals with him, and he's going to let them have what they wanted. What do you think is going to happen when he lets the serpent loose and this world system loose to have what it wanted? What do you think is coming forth from their system? Death. death. To be saved from wrath is to be saved from that death that is in that system. Right? That's what it means to be saved from wrath. I mean, I hate to trash Calvin, but no, I don't. One of the worst things that ever happened to Western believers was the, I'll say the doctrine of John Calvin. Because I don't want you to confuse the person John Calvin with his doctrine. Because we, we haven't met the person John Calvin 
And the person, John Calvin, may have been wrestling with what he believed about God in an honest way. He just might not have gotten to where he needed to get, right? And so we can judge his wrestling and say, well, he didn't complete the match. And he didn't get to where he needed to go. So we could trash his doctrine. But we don't have to trash the man, John Calvin, to trash his doctrine. And I wish there was much more of that in the body of Christ, where we'd stop associating ourselves with our doctrine, right? And we, that would allow all of us to come together and expediently get rid of all the bad doctrine. Because I promise you, when people don't connect themselves to bad doctrine, they're much more likely to understand why it's bad and let go of it. Yep. But the moment they've attached themselves or their ministry or their power or their livelihood to some doctrine, they ain't letting it go when it gets trashed. In fact, they've taken it personally. And that's one of the things God had to first do in me, was separate me from my doctrine, right? To where I could hear him challenging my doctrine which at that time i'd already been in grace for a while i thought my doctrine was real good and probably by most people's standards it was but it still was jacked up and the first thing i had to do was feel separated from that doctrine so that every time he come and pointed at my doctrine and questioned it and trashed it i wouldn't feel like he was trashing me and my heart wouldn't well up with pride and i wouldn't build up walls right because the moment you identify with your doctrine instead of the god who dropped his doctrine in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen, man, you're going to have barriers and stumbling blocks to you trying to hear what God is saying because you're going to be identifying with the doctrine, right? That's one of the things I see with Calvin's doctrine is people identify with it. And that's why they struggle to let it go. They find their justification in Calvin's doctrine instead of Jesus Christ. I'm a Calvinist. Right. They say that. That's what they are. Calvin. I'm a Calvinist. That's exactly right. And, and so that's one of the things that, that has allowed us to be able to grow is that we're not identifying with our doctrinal positions. We're identifying with the Lord Jesus and we're allowing God to straighten out our doctrinal positions. And that's why we can put every thought in the fire and weigh it in light of God, right? And see what it means. That's why I don't get all bent out of shape if somebody disagrees with me. Right? We, let's talk about it. I might not accept that it's true. Right. I might have a million reasons that I come back with. But I'm not like, they're challenging the authority of the church and the pastor in front of the other people. We've got to deal with that. Right? Because listen, man, a real church, I'm not the authority here. I might, I might be given a gift to where I'm talking a lot and I can expound on scriptures, but I'm not the authority. God's the authority. And the moment I get it twisted and think I'm the authority, I got a big problem. Right? You know, it's interesting when you look at um, the wrath of God. Like, you read back in the Psalms where uh, the psalmist wrote, Should I not hate those who hate you? Should I, should I not spite them? You know? And then you read in the New Testament, and it says, Love your enemies, do good to those who persecute you, blah, blah, blah. And uh, you, you look at these two things and you say, well, which one am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to hate those who hate Jesus or hate the gospel or, and, and, and love other people? Or am I supposed to love everyone, you know? And, uh, but there is, you would see a contradiction in that. Am I, the psalmist said, should I not hate those who hate you? But then he says, love everybody. There's a con- there's a contradiction there. Seemingly, but it was the wisdom 
that was in the hearts of those who hate God. That is the thing which will be taken wrath on. It's, it's the wisdom that exists there. Yeah. And that's why when you come to the New Testament, Paul can say, love even your enemies. Yeah. Because in loving your enemies, you're taking wrath on the very thing that is killing, was killing the people. Right, it's like the heaping of the coals. We always saw that as a negative thing because we were filled with Calvin. Calvin's doctrine. Calvin's doctrine drools for the death of those they call unbelievers. And that's why you've seen the church behave towards unbelievers the way that you have over the last several hundred years. Whereas, so you read the coals being heaped upon their head and you see it as like a physical sword smiting them. But really what it is, is it's the fire of God's love, right? That is heaped upon them, right? And that takes wrath or vengeance on that system, yeah. right? It takes vengeance on the death. And, and the, the word hate in the Hebrew, many times, I mean, the scriptures talk about not going in the way of the furor, right? The book of Proverbs is filled with not walking in the way of those who are filled with lust, that are lusting after blood. Sure. And so to hate those who hate God is also talking about not going in their way, not walking after the way that they're walking in or the wisdom that they're walking in, right? right? And it's, it's many times less less about hating the individual person. Like when it talks about God hated Esau, it didn't mean that God felt personal distaste for the man Esau. It's that God hated the way that Esau went, which is that he sold the birthright he had from God for the life he could build for himself through the strength of the flesh. That's what it means. He sold his birthright for one morsel of meat. Right? God hated that way. Now, why did God hate that way? Because that way was going to kill Esau. Yeah. That's why he hated it. Yeah. Just the same thing with Cain, right? Yeah. It's the exact same thing. Yeah. And the thing with you were saying about believing, I mean, the true believing, everybody believes in something. So, but the true believer is what can see the end results. Yeah. And believe the end results. Yeah. Because if we believe the end results is our self doing ourselves, is death. Yeah. But if we believe through Jesus, it's eternal life. Yeah. God has hid his face from that way. It's it's like in Gideon. I'm gonna probably at some point I'm gonna start doing a whole series on Revelation and piece some of these things together for people so they have some metric barometer by which to judge all the horrible things people are saying about Revelation. Of which there's always been a lot, but there was a massive uptick once COVID came, right? Because everybody wants to figure out the end of the world. <laughs> But if you look at Gideon, when Gideon went into the camp of the, was it the Philistines? I, I can't remember, the, maybe it was the Amorites. But when he went into that camp, he didn't go in there with any weapons. What he did was he went in there with an earthen vessel that had a, a candle in it. And he went in there with silver trumpets. And they went into the camp and they smashed the earthen vessels onto the ground that had the light in it, and then they blew the trump. Well, then all the people in the camp, it says, took swords to themselves. Well, how did the sword, I mean, what are the swords representing? He who tries to find life by the sword will from that sword reap death. So it's not that God killed those people, even that. It's that those people were trying to find life by the sword. And then what happened was that sword that has death in it to pay them with that sword paid them with death, right? And all Gideon did was declare Christ crucified. That's what there was, the blowing of the trumpet. I mean, who's the earthen vessel? Wasn't Jesus an earthen vessel? Wasn't he crushed? 
Yes. Well, wasn't there a light inside of him? Yes. That when his earthen vessel was crushed, it overcame the darkness? Yes. Okay, and then he blows the trump. That's the same thing as Jesus coming back on the white horse. With it says the sword of the Spirit coming out of his mouth. It's not a physical sword coming out of his mouth. It's not him coming and smiting people like we think of smiting people, an act of action. Do you know what's him declaring? The wages of looking to the sword for life is death. The gift God has in his hand to give is eternal life. You know what's going to happen when that word comes out of his mouth? The plague that Babylon has inside of itself is going to come out. It ain't going to have come from him. It's going to have come from within them. It's coming out of them. The plague they have in themselves, it's going to manifest. Right? And then when it manifests and it wells up, what is it manifesting and welling up to do? John comes and says that the darkness didn't comprehend the light when it manifested in the earth. The darkness is the death. Babylon. It didn't comprehend the light when it came into the earth. And so the same way when Jesus comes back on a horse, the gift of God is eternal life. The wages of trying to find life by the sword is destruction. When he comes saying that, all of the destruction that is in Babylon is coming out. And it's going to manifest right there in the earth, right? Because it doesn't comprehend the light. And it's going to manifest thinking it's going to overcome the light. And then what is Jesus going to do? He's going to separate the darkness from creation. He's going to separate death from creation. He's going to consume death to the uttermost, right? Yeah. Just by the light of his life. I mean, light doesn't work to remove darkness. It just manifests itself. So in Jesus is a life that removes death. And, and so he just is there and the death is gone. Right? And so just the way we understand these things, like being watchful, like we need to be watchful. That means Jesus is the lake of fire. G yeah, the light of God's life is the lake of fire. If you notice on the day of Pentecost, and it speaks forward to this, on the day of Pentecost, we were baptized. John said, there's one who comes after me who will baptize you in fire. Okay, well, when they were baptized on the day of Pentecost, what hung over their head? A tongue of fire. Well, what was that God doing? What was, that, what was God doing there? He was sealing us with the fire of his life, right? Because he knew this world, this earth, was going to be flooded with the fire of his life. And anything that wasn't pitched within and without with that same life, would perish with death, just like with Noah. He had Noah build the ark. There's even language that says he pitched it with, God told him, pitch it within and without. Why? Because God was going to cleanse the earth from death. And anybody who could be pitched within and without would be saved from the end that's coming to death. Well, God's coming back to cleanse the earth from death. This time, it's not a shadow. He's coming with the fire of his life. Not a fire that burns, a fire that purifies, a fire that is the manifestation of life. But he doesn't want us to perish with death. So he's got to get it right to seal us within and without with the fire of his life. So that when this earth is flooded with the fire of his life, we won't perish with the death that's going to perish. Right? That's the whole purpose there. That's the whole meaning of the thing with Noah. That's the whole thing that's prophesying of. And I got a firefighter friend who told me once that, you know, the interesting thing about what you're saying, Greg, is that the only thing a fire can't consume is another fire. Right? And so some people ask me, well, why, didn't, why did God waiting all this time? Why didn't he just manifest life in the earth immediately? Well, you're completely misunderstanding that he's got to get you in the ark. 
Because if he just manifests the fullness of his life in this earth, everything that isn't sealed in his life is going to perish with death. But the scripture says God not willing that any should perish. He's long-suffering, meaning he don't want to just do that. He wants people to be saved from the end that's coming to death. And the way they're going to be saved is by him pitching them within and without with the fire of his life. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's the ark. Jesus came in the likeness of a preacher of righteousness. It says Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And he built the ark. And the ark preserved their lives from the end that was coming to death. Well, Jesus comes as the preacher of righteousness. And he built a completely different kind of ark when he stood up out of the grave. He built a body that's clothed in the fire of God's life. And when he ascended to the heavenly place and sat down, the spirit that is the fire of that life was poured out on all flesh. And now all those who believe have gotten up into the ark that Jesus Christ made when he came out of the grave. Right? And that preserves our lives from the end that's coming to death when God himself shows up on this earth to remove death once for all time. Right? So it's to be saved from wrath is to be saved from the end that's coming to death. And how do we know an end's coming to death? Because God has hid his face from that way. And so we know an end is coming to death. God doesn't want us to die. That's how you know being saved from wrath isn't about being saved from God being angry. He wouldn't make a way out for you. (laughs) Right? Right? So his purpose is to bring an end to the prince of this world and his system of death. Well, he's got a problem. We're in the world. So how's he going to keep us from perishing with the death? I know. I'll arc them up. (laughs) Right? And that's what he does. He arcs us up. (laughs) That's your title. You got to copyright that. (laughs) She needs that painting. We need to... Yeah, the painting next door. Let's put a whole bunch of people in there. <laughs> That's right. For the animals. And, and we've had all. We, we've had just real quick. We've had all this nonsense about where we see the verses that say to be watchful for the Lord, right? Like up on your watchtower, so that you can be sure that you're ready when He comes, because He's coming like a thief in the night. And then we've interpreted being watchful as you better make sure you're serving in church a lot. You better make sure you got your act cleaned up when He comes back, right? Well. There's, a, there's many verses in the Bible that talk about us being ashamed at His coming if we hadn't believed on Him, right? That when He comes, if we don't see that we're like Him, we're going to be unashamed. We're going to be ashamed. So to be naked when Jesus comes is what it means to be unprepared. The preparing is to buy of gold from Jesus that's been purified in the fire. What's the gold? His faith. That faith has been proved to be true, meaning it will not leave you naked. That faith will clothe you. It will make you ready in the day that he returns, and you will not be ashamed on that day that he returns because that faith that's in him clothed him, and it will clothe you. That's what it means to be prepared for his coming. It means find yourself in the place where you clothe the pawn when my man shows up. Don't be in the place where your nakedness is uncovered when he shows up because unto those people, their hearts are going to torment them and their hearts are going to be filled with fear and it's going to work death in them. That's the being prepared. And you can just use an example of Herod in the book of Acts. He was not prepared. They were all talking about how he was a god. Yes, I'm a god. 
worshiping himself, worshiping his own strength. All of a sudden, the angel shows up in the corner of the room, clothed in the glory of God. Herod was not prepared. He was ashamed at the coming of that angel because when he saw the glory of the Lord, immediately he saw he can't be his own God because he left himself naked and ashamed. He wasn't prepared. And then what happened? That belief he had in his heart, which is Satan, Hasatan, that belief, Satan was in his heart, and that worked death in him. He wasn't prepared. So the preparing can be boiled down to one thing. Clothed upon when he shows up or naked when he shows up? So what's going to clothe you on the day that he shows up? Is it going to be the good things you did? Is it going to be because you cleaned up your act? Is it going to be because you were on a physical tower watching? No, no, no. That's not what it's going to be. What it's going to be is the faith that, that is in Jesus' heart on the cross. That faith, you saw how it raised him clothed? That's what it means to be prepared. You have the faith that will clothe upon you. That when you see him, you see you're the same as him. That's what it means to be prepared. And I promise you there ain't none of your good deeds that are going to clothe upon you. They are as filthy rags. That doesn't mean we might not do good things, but that's not what will clothe upon us. That's not what it means to be watchful. That's not what it means to be prepared. That's not what it means to be ready. Right? Right? To be ready is, wow, man, I'm clothed. I see him and I see myself as clothed. Not ready is there he is clothed and holy sh- <laughs> I'm naked. That's right. right? That's how you boil that thing down real quickly and real easily. Amen. Glory to God. Amen. You guys are awesome. Amen.